Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Intelligence Matters ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with BiteClear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. BiteClear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. This is Intelligence Matters with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell. Brought to you by Palantir Technologies, foundational software of tomorrow, delivered today. My own view at the time was, and today remains, that we should have been providing more assistance to Ukraine. We should have been making it much more difficult for Putin. And in part, I think, because in terms of deterrence, we would have wanted him to be thinking, if the Americans are willing to do this for a country that they've offered assurances to but have no treaty obligation to, what would they do to defend countries like Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania to whom they have an actual treaty obligation? Eric Edelman, who has been on our show before, is one of our country's leading voices on national security. Eric was a career foreign service officer, ambassador to Turkey and Finland, and served as the Undersecretary of Defense for Policy, the top policy job at the Pentagon. Eric joins me today to talk about the war in Ukraine nearly six months after it began and where it might be heading. We'll be right back with that discussion after a word from our sponsor. I'm Michael Morell, and this is Intelligence Matters. You can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. Eric, welcome back to Intelligence Matters. It's great to have you on the show again. Michael, it's always great to be with you. Thanks for having me back. You're welcome. So Eric, before we jump into Ukraine and where we are in the war, I want to ask you just two questions about your career. The first is, I know that early in your career, you worked on the Soviet Union at both the State Department and you served at the U.S. Embassy in Moscow and I'm just wondering to what extent that those experiences 
you know, shaped your views of Russia today and, and how you think about Russia today? Yeah. It won't surprise you that uh, those experiences, you know, shaping in a very f- fundamental way. I was on the uh, Soviet desk in the State Department in the mid-80s at the very, very height of the Cold War. I had been special assistant to Secretary of State George Shultz during the Abel Archer episode, which, you know, arguably brought us, you know, close to a potential nuclear war. And then I went to Moscow and served in the embassy in a period of high perestroika, great optimism about change and reform in in the Soviet Union, and then continued to work on those issues, uh, including at the Pentagon, uh, when the Soviet Union collapsed, and then worked uh, with Strobe Talbot and others on the process of NATO enlargement in the late 90s and reform in Russia as a kind of independent state. And so, you know, I was filled with lots of optimism about Russia in the in the 1990s. And then I got to observe from very nearby as ambassador to Finland, as things began to turn in a different direction. And as you can imagine, Michael, the Finns are very close observers of what goes on across their uh, roughly 800 mile border with, with Russia. And from the get-go, I have to say, I had a lot of concerns about Putin, as did a lot of my Finnish colleagues and friends who were close observers of of Russia. And unfortunately, I think Putin has taken the country, you know, in a very unhealthy direction by installing a kind of regime of kleptocratic regime of his cronies, most of whom come from the KGB. And really, you know, sort of the KGB took back the country after Putin became first prime minister and then president. The second question I want to ask you, Eric, relates to the fact that you were the assistant to the Secretary of State, George Shultz. And, you know, I think he's one of the, the best secretaries of state that we've had. And I wonder what you learned from the secretary that shaped your foreign policy thinking in general and how you approach an issue like Ukraine today? Well, I agree, Michael, with you that uh, George Schultz was, uh, during my 30-year career in the State Department, the best Secretary of State uh, who served, who I served under. And I used to joke, including with him, that there's an old saying that no man is a hero to his valet, but as, you know, someone who schlepped, you know, George Schultz's briefcases around the world mm-hmm. for for two years, you know, he was and remains my hero. I mean, he had, you know, he was very calm and very collected and very considered, and he never, you know, kind of lost his, his cool, but he was very analytical. He, you know, brought a wealth of experience. He'd been you know, a, a multiple cabinet secretary, he'd been secretary of labor, secretary of the treasury before he became secretary of state. Uh, he'd been the head of a fortune 500 corporation. He'd been the dean of the business school at the university of Chicago, an economist. Uh, he, he just had an enormous amount of head of the domestic policy council. He, he'd been just very, very experienced. And he brought all of that to bear. And I learned a lot of different things from him. You know, one of the things I learned from him was demography is destiny. As a result of, of, you know, his 
tutoring, I have you know remained very interested in demographics of various countries ever uh, ever since. You know, he had a, a great strategy for dealing with the Soviet Union, which entailed a very broad array of issues. It wasn't just arms control, although he pursued arms control with the Soviet Union, but it was human rights. It was pushing back against Soviet proxies in the third world. It was, you know, economic. He had a variety of different tools in the toolbox to deal with the Soviet Union under President Reagan. And, you know, a strategy that ultimately, I think, was very successful and paid huge dividends, not just during the Reagan term, but during the term of George H.W. Bush, when the Soviet Union ultimately first saw its external empire collapse, and then it collapsed as well. Yeah. Okay, let's switch to today, Eric. In just a few weeks, we're going to hit the six-month mark since the full-scale Russian invasion of Ukraine, which was February 24th. And as we approach six months, we'll talk about where the conflict stands today, and maybe we can break it down into into three pieces as we go through this. One is, where are we on the battlefield? Second is, where are we in the economic struggle that's associated with this war, right, between Russia and the West, um, which captures Ukraine in the middle, right? And then where are we in the fight for want of a better phrase, the the hearts and minds of swing countries around the globe regarding Russia's behavior here. So let's take those one at a time and maybe start with the battlefield. Sure. Those are, you know, it's a great way to break it down, I think. So on the battlefield, of course, the uh, Russian maximal objectives of, as they put it, you know, demilitarizing and denazifying Ukraine, which essentially meant, you know, regime change in Ukraine and turning it into a a Russian vassal state or diminishing, you know, a rump Ukraine in the West and absorbing, you know, the most of the eastern part of the country, that that is, you know, no longer feasible, I don't think, for, for Putin, because the military has performed so poorly and because the Ukrainians have performed so well. I mean, it's not just that the Russians have performed poorly and that a lot of that goes to uh, corruption in the society. I mean, every military is a uh, expression of the society out of which it it grows, and you know the corruption of that is endemic in Russia. It's as Ed Lucas uh, has said, it's not a uh, uh, you know a flaw in the system. It is the system um, that that it's not surprising that that would also manifest itself in the military, and that that would have enormous deleterious impact on the ability of the military to actually execute, you know, a fairly complicated combined arms operation. I think there was some concern uh, in the last few weeks that as the Russians sort of regrouped and pursued some more limited objectives, which appeared to be fully conquering the Donbass, that's the two provinces of Donetsk and Lugansk and in the southeast of Ukraine, that the Russians would be able to succeed in in uh, doing that, perhaps annex those portions of Ukraine, and then hold the areas in the south of the country that they've seized, essentially the a land bridge between the Donbass uh, along the coast down to the Crimea, which of course was seized and annexed in in the 2014-2015 war. 
what I think is now happening is there was some uh, limited Russian advances uh, in Lugansk, which they basically now got you know most of of Lugansk under their control. But in Donetsk province, they've had great difficulty moving very far. Some of that has to do with just the exhaustion and depletion of their forces after you know five uh, months of of war. And they've taken enormous casualties. I mean, I saw yesterday, I'm sure you did, Michael, as well, revised estimates uh, by the U.S. government that the Russians may have lost 75,000 killed and wounded in in this military operation, which is about 50% of what they started out with. I actually think those are probably conservative estimates. I suspect the losses are probably higher. And what that raises is the question of, you know, what military experts like to call, you know, the culmination of the Russian advance, where they're no longer able to actually move forward anymore. Now, there have been a lot of predictions about this, you know, offensive uh, in the Donbass culminating. And so I don't want to add another prediction, but it does seem that they're having great difficulty actually moving very far. And a lot of that has to do with the very smart way the Ukrainians have been fighting and the way they've been using the uh, military equipment that we have provided them, particularly the HIMARS, the high mobility artillery system that we've provided them with that has a, a, you know, basically rocket-powered artillery shells, uh, the so-called Gimlers. These are very precise rounds, which you know have a range of about 80 kilometers, and they have very systematically attacked the weakest point of the Russian military operation, which is the logistics. And they've made it very difficult for them to operate. What they've also done in the South, which is going to be very important for the next topic we will talk about, which is the economic war, they have been isolating the Russian forces in Kherson City. And I think they're making it very difficult, again, going after the logistics, taking out bridges through which the Russians are resupplying their forces. They're going to make the position of, of these forces in Kherson untenable. And I think there's a likelihood that they will take back Kherson City. Now, whether they can move to a broader counteroffensive from that, I don't know. But I would basically say from the point of view of the battlefield today, Ukraine is doing very well, Russia not so well. My own view is we ought to be giving the Ukrainians more equipment and faster, more HIMARS, more rounds. I would also be in favor of giving them the attackums rounds, which have a 300-kilometer range. There are issues we can talk about with regard to escalation and also whether they can attack Russia that are involved there. But uh, that would be my view. I, I think, as our uh, former colleague Elliot Cohen has written, the idea of titrating out you know, in little drops the equipment we're giving the Ukrainians is not, I think, the best way to go about this. Okay, Eric, let's switch to the economic fight. Yeah, on the economic side, I have more concerns. And there's no doubt that the Russian economy has been hard hit by the sanctions. They've managed to keep the value of the ruble from completely collapsing, but I'm not sure that's the only measure. There's some, uh, there was a recent study out of the Yale School of Management by Jeffrey Sonnenfeld about the state of the Russian economy, which is, you know, very dire in, in terms of the ability of the economy to actually produce things. I mean, automobile manufacture, for instance, has uh, virtually ceased in Russia. So Russia is definitely feeling the heat of the sanctions. But 
it, you know, even if you believe the, you know, some of the most dire predictions, uh, the Russian economy is going to contract by somewhere between 15 to 30 percent this year. The Ukrainian economy is already contracted by 45 to 50 percent. And in particular, as as you know, Michael, they have 22 million tons of grain in silos. They're about to start the summer harvest, which means more grain is going to be piling up. And that that's an issue both for Ukraine in, in order to be able to earn the export earnings. They're, they're uh, one of the largest uh, wheat and sunflower oil exporters in the world. And so there are knock-on effects to global food security. But just for the economy to be able to survive, they need to get that out. Now, there's a agreement that's just been reached among Turkey, the UN, Russia, and Ukraine, although not a direct agreement between Ukraine and Russia, to open the port of Odessa and get uh, some of this uh, stuff out. I mean, the, the ink was not even dry on the agreement when the Russians were shelling some of the port facilities, uh, grain storage, etc., you know, which raises the question of how effective the agreement is going to be and how easy it's going to be for Ukraine to survive economically. The government is running eight to nine billion dollar deficit a month, some of which is being plugged by money from the 40 billion that the U.S. Congress appropriated. And there's some monies coming from the EU, but none of that, I mean, it doesn't add up to, you know, plugging the gap. So Ukraine, of course, is, I think, fighting a war for survival. And that means that you can maybe survive really dire circumstances. But I worry that as time moves on, as as we get into the fall, as, as uh, the weather gets colder, you might start to see you know, some of the allied unity begin to break down on the sanctions front and, you know, whether Ukrainians can persist in this heroic resistance against Russia, I don't, I don't know. So I'm, I'm fairly confident about the, you know, military battlefield. I'm less confident about the economic battlefield. And that's one reason why I think it's imperative to get the Ukrainians as much military, you know, material and arms as we can it would be very important if they can actually just win this on the battlefield by the you know end of the summer or in early fall. So Eric, I want to jump now to the third piece, which is you know there's a large number of countries in the world that are kind of on the sidelines here. You know, a small number of countries that that have joined arms with the United States and imposed sanctions, but a much larger number of countries who are just on the sidelines. You know, why is that number one, and is there any chance of changing that number two? Well, first, let me just say that I think the Biden administration deserves a lot of credit for maintaining an extraordinary degree of uh, allied unity in terms of NATO and the European Union. I think that in terms of the transatlantic relationship, I'm not sure, given you know, sort of all the uproar over the last several years about the U.S. commitment to NATO and the Europe, that one would have predicted that in the face of this military invasion, this, you know, unprovoked war of aggression by by Putin, that you would have as much allied unity as you've had. And so I think administration deserves a lot of credit for that, particularly Secretary Blinken, who I think has done an extraordinarily good job of alliance management, which is... I guess you could throw Japan and South Korea in there as well. Yeah. Right? And, and I mean, I include them as part of the West, really. And, and I think that's right. I think what you're talking about is in the third world, where what we used to call the third world or the non-aligned world, where attitudes are, you know, much more ambivalent. 
And there, you know, in some places like sub-Saharan Africa, some parts of the Middle East or in East Asia, which are actually very dependent on some of these agricultural exports, I think the Russians have done a pretty good job of muddying the waters about who's really responsible for this. I mean, I think, you know, you and I would look at this and say, well, there's not even a question here. This is, you know, this is all because Russia started this war, because they were blockading the ports, uh, southern ports of, of Ukraine. Blockade is an act of war, even though Putin has said this is a special military operation, not a war. But, uh, you know, they, in fact, have been blockading. They've moved their ships back a little bit since the command ship of the Black Sea Fleet, the Moskva, was uh, sunk by by the Ukrainians using anti-ship cruise missiles. But they're still responsible. But they've done a great job of saying, well, no, it's really NATO that's responsible for this. It's the U.S. And that, you know, I think falls on, you know, relatively fertile ground. And there's, you know, always a current of anti-Americanism in in the post-colonial world. We have, I think, not been as on our toes uh, fighting this uh, in the public diplomacy realm as we should be. Um, Some of that, I think, is from chronic underfunding of the State Department's platform. Some of it's because we've just gotten out of the habit of, you know, doing that kind of thing. And I think, you know, that's a real problem going forward. I think we're going to have to be much more active countering countering this Russian offensive. I mean, you'll note that Foreign Minister Lavrov has been touring Africa, uh, trying to, you know, reiterate this Russian line of, of argument that this is not their fault. That And I think the reason that they reached this agreement with the UN and with Turkey to open the ports is in part to run counter to the argument that we have made that this is Russia's fault. And so they're saying, look, see, we're negotiating an opening of the ports. Don't blame us. Of course, the fact that they then immediately shelled Odessa, which may in part be an effort to drive up the insurance costs that make it prohibitive to get Ukrainian grain out of the port of Odessa, belies all that. But, but there you go. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor, then we'll be right back with more of a discussion with Eric. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset, hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. So Eric, I want to come back to the question of U.S. policy. And 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 I'd say, right, and I think you'd agree with me that that several things should be driving us, right? One is our policy objectives. You know, what do we what what do we want to achieve here? How much of an economic price, you know, do we want to pay? And how much risk are we willing to take with regard to escalation? And I'm wondering if you would add anything to that list. And then more importantly, how do you assess how the administration has thought about those things as it's put its policy together? Are we thinking about all those the right way, particularly escalation and our policy objectives, I think? Yeah. I mean, the only thing I would add, Michael, is I think one of our policy objectives is a broad strategic one, which has to do with with global order. 
and allowing unprovoked, premeditated uh, aggression to take place between two countries where the United States is not, you know, completely outside of this. We signed a number of agreements at the end of the Cold War with Russia, with Ukraine, that had to do with Ukraine giving up its claim to the nuclear weapons that were left on its soil after the breakup of the Soviet Union, which assured them that uh, the United States and Russia and Britain and France were also associated with this in different ways, that Ukraine would allow, would be allowed to exist within its then existing borders, which included not just the Donbass, but also Crimea, and that they would not be threatened with the use of force. Now, Russia has violated all that. That's a major blow, I think, to the nonproliferation regime, which is a major U.S. interest, global interest and objective. Um, and it, it just uh, tears at the fabric of international order and provides an incentive, potentially, for instance, to the PRC when it looks across the strait at Taiwan or to the DPRK uh, or to the Islamic Republic of Iran. And so in terms of global order, making sure that Putin fails, it seems to me, is an absolutely overriding uh, U.S objective. There is a concern about escalation, and I accept that. I mean, Russia is a nuclear power. Uh, it's an enormous nuclear power. It actually has a, a nuclear arsenal that at least numerically is larger than ours by a few warheads. But I think that the administration has been a little too concerned about the risk of escalation. I mean, the risk of escalation works both ways, right? Because we're a nuclear power too. So are our French and British allies. I don't think that the Putin and the Russians want to have a nuclear exchange. It would be devastating for everybody. As all five of the nuclear weapon states reasserted just before the Russians invaded Ukraine, a nuclear war sh you know, can, uh, should never be waged and can never be won. That remains the case. During the Cold War, when both sides had even larger arsenals of nuclear weapons, we fought proxy conflicts in Korea and in Vietnam and elsewhere around the world, and we you know, didn't escalate to nuclear exchange. I, I think it's you know, possible to manage this now uh, without worrying about it. And I think the administration has been so worried about what might provoke Putin and so busy describing what it won't do because it might provoke Putin that they haven't really, I think, done something very fundamental, which is try and raise concerns in his mind about what he might do that would, would you know, lead us to escalate. And I think, uh, you know, Henry Kissinger has, you know, for years pointed out that deterrence, uh, what we think is, you know, deters people is not important. It's really what goes on in their minds, and you can never really know that. So you really have to focus on trying to deal with their perceptions rather than put your perceptions in the place of, of what they might be thinking. Absolutely. So Eric, this is a, a bit of a tough question, but let's give it a go anyway. Can you talk about what you see as the most likely scenarios over the next several months? Are we stuck in a stalemate here? Can the Ukrainians actually win? Is there a way for Putin to get his momentum back? How much of what the United States does um, really matters to these scenarios? Can you, can you kind of paint a picture of where we might be going? Well, I think 
uh, let me start with the last, Michael. I mean, what we do matters enormously, and it already has mattered. I mean, it, it's as we were saying earlier in the conversation, uh, U.S. assistance first in the, in the form of javelins and stingers in the early stages of this war, uh, and now with artillery and particularly the HIMARS, uh, we've made an enormous difference on the battlefield. That's not to take anything away from the Ukrainians. I mean, they, they have shown themselves to be very adept at using what we've given them um, and, and very creative in the way that they've dealt with this Russian aggression. But uh, we've made a huge difference, and we can still, I think, make uh, a huge difference. I think it's going to be very difficult uh, for Putin to get the initiative back, certainly in a military sense, because of the damage that's been done to his forces. And, and it's really uh, the personnel and the leadership. I mean, enormous losses of leadership, general officers, colonels, lieutenant colonels. They're finding it because he doesn't want to declare a national mobilization, doesn't want to say that this is a war. They're having you know a lot of difficulty replacing the forces that they've lost. And I think that's going to continue. So I think it's going to be very hard for them to you know, recover the initiative. The big military question, and I don't have an answer for it, is whether the Ukrainians can move from the strategic defensive, which they have executed pretty brilliantly, I would argue, and transition from that to a counteroffensive that would either drive Russians' forces out back to the pre-February 24th lines, which would still leave Russia occupying about a third of Lugansk and Donetsk, which they occupied before February 24th. And I don't know whether the Ukrainians are going to be able to do that. And then the other issue is whether this does turn into kind of a a frozen conflict, a sort of stalemate, as you were suggesting. And I worry about that because that would then, you know, maybe put this conflict onto the kind of economic basis that we talked about earlier, where, as I said, I have some worries about the long-term issue of who has time on their side, whether it's Russia or Ukraine. We don't know the answer to that, but I worry that, you know, the Russians might be able to make time work for them. And again, that's one reason why I would like to maximize the effort we're putting into to doing it. There might be, I think, you know, temptation in some quarters to play for a tie, you know, to to say, well, you know, a stalemate is okay because it means Putin hasn't achieved his objectives. But I, I worry that a stalemate could be bad both on the battlefield and at home for the battle for public opinion in the United States because there's been very good, you know, support publicly for supporting Ukraine. But my reading of, you know, sort of U.S. public opinion is that as long as people think there's a prospect for success for the Ukrainians, uh, they'll be willing to support Ukraine. I think if it begins to devolve into something that looks like another frozen conflict, endless war, I worry that some of that support will dissipate. And then, of course, as, as we've been saying, if it goes long and time actually favors Russia on the economic front, that could have very bad consequences as well. We're going to take another quick break. We'll be right back with more Intelligence Matters. Stay with us. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. 
Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. So Eric, I want to actually go backwards in time here and talk about how we ended up here. So as you know, Putin came to power in 2000. He served as the Russian president for all but four of the years since. And during those four years, he served as prime minister. And I'm wondering if you think that where we are today was inevitable, given who Putin is as a person and given the degree of Russian nationalism and perceived Russian grievances. Or do you think the circumstances of the last 22 years brought us here or perhaps it's some combination, right, of all of that? So how do you think about how we got here from where we started way back in 2000? Yeah, I think it, I think it is a combination of things. I think if you look at something like Catherine Belton's book, Putin's People, she was the former Financial Times correspondent in Moscow, very well connected, or Karen Dawish, or the late Karen Dawish's book, Putin's Kleptocracy. It seems pretty clear that there was a core of folks from the KGB who even as the Soviet Union was collapsing, were both taking advantage of their privileged position in the system to both enrich themselves, but also to plot and plan to take over the state to further their own largely personal interests. Although I don't doubt that it's got an admixture of kind of Russian nationalism and nostalgia for you know great power status and what, what have you. And that, I think, was inevitable. I don't think there was much we could have really done about that. I mean, we probably could have been a little more vocal about some of the violations of rule of law, the arrest of Khodorkovsky and jailing of Khodorkovsky for 10 years, crushing of independent media. I mean, we could have been more outspoken about that, I suppose. But in the end of the day, I'm not sure that would have changed anything that much. And then there is also, you know, circumstance. I mean, I I think there are some things that we did, some that at the time people may not have even appreciated as much. I'm, I'm thinking, for instance, our recognition of the unilateral declaration of independence by Kosovo, which the Russians have subsequently used as an excuse for, for instance, recognizing separatists in Ossetia and Abkhazia and Georgia, and to some degree, same argument they're making in the Donbass and in Crimea, in Ukraine. So there were some of the things we did. There's no doubt there are other things we did that were irritants. But the, the biggest thing that happened, and I don't think we could have controlled that, was the eruption of the color revolutions, in particular the color revolution in Ukraine in 2004 and five. And I think that was extremely unnerving to Putin because his conclusion was, erroneously, I think, that A, the U.S. was behind it. Right. 
and and B that our ultimate objective was to impose a color revolution on Russia and overthrow him. Right. Absolutely. And the other thing I would say that I think kind of brought us to this pass was the way we responded in 2014 and 2015. I think the Obama administration, uh, which did impose sanctions, and I, I don't, you know, want to be overly critical, but I think it was pretty clear that President Obama, who did not, for instance, favor giving Ukraine lethal military assistance, believed that, uh, as several people who spoke to him about this at the time have told me, that Russia always was going to care more about Ukraine than the United States, that Russia had escalation dominance because Ukraine was very close to Russia, very far from the U.S., and that therefore we should not kind of you know get into a, a, any kind of proxy conflict there. My own view at the time was, and today remains, that we should have been providing more assistance to Ukraine. We should have been making it much more difficult for Putin. And in part, I think, because in terms of deterrence, we would have wanted him to be thinking, if the Americans are willing to do this for a country that they've offered assurances to but have no treaty obligation to, what would they do to defend countries like Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania to whom they have an actual treaty obligation? So as part of deterrence, I think making life difficult for him in Ukraine was an important step, and I think we missed that opportunity in the period after 2014. So last couple of questions, Eric. I want to ask about China. As you know, the Chinese supported this invasion, and they still do, at least rhetorically. So really two questions. One is, have you learned anything new about China, how you think about China, based on how it handled this invasion? Or have you just had your prior beliefs reinforced about China? It's an interesting question. I mean, so right before the February 24th invasion, Putin and Xi met and they declared a, an endless partnership. What's interesting, since the war began, you know, the endless partnership might have been consummated had the Russians actually achieved their objectives in 72 hours, as they hoped to, and uh, kind of just rolled over and decapitated the Zelensky government and, uh, you know, occupied Kiev and Kharkiv and most of eastern Ukraine and just dismembered the country. But when it proved to be more difficult and the sanctions started to be applied to Russia, I think the Chinese have been, you know, very careful. I mean, they certainly provide lots of rhetorical support for the Russians, but they haven't produced a whole lot. They haven't really provided a lot of material support to the Russians. And I think uh, they're watching this, you know, very closely. And obviously they have, you know, other considerations in mind. There are, you know, a couple of different lessons that the Chinese have, could be learning from this. And I don't think we know the answer to this, Michael. I mean, maybe maybe you and perhaps some of your former colleagues who are still in government today have a better idea of this than I do. But, you know, on the one hand, they could be learning the lessons that I think a lot of our colleagues in the Department of Defense have told me they think that the Chinese are learning. You know, combined arms operations are actually really difficult. You know, if your military hasn't fought in a war in a long time, or if the last time they fought was 1979 against a kind of smaller power and they didn't do that well, maybe you want to think twice about, you know, kind of launching uh, 
an amphibious operation against Taiwan, which is, of all the combined operations, combined arms operations you can do, perhaps the most challenging and difficult. You know, maybe the folks on Taiwan will react kind of the way the Ukrainians have and resist, and that might be kind of difficult. Um, so all of those sort of cautionary lessons could be what people in in Beijing are drawing from this, and certainly Xi Jinping may be drawing from this. I worry that there could be other lessons that are being learned, you know, one of which is if you start making a lot of nuclear threats, particularly if you're developing a nuclear force that now is, you know, not maybe the equal of the United States, but much closer to peer status than it's ever been historically. Since Americans are very concerned about nuclear escalation, you make a lot of nuclear threats early, and maybe you impose a blockade around Taiwan very quickly to make the Americans bump up against the risk of escalation very early. And then maybe you decapitate the government of Taiwan. Uh, so Mrs. Tsai or whoever succeeds her can't rally you know, the people to resist you. Uh, and I don't know which set of lessons they're learning or whether they're learning some of both. Um, but what I worry about, because you and I served on a commission four years ago that looked at the defense posture of the United States. And at that time, we expressed concern that we might have a, you know, a um, conflict over Taiwan, which the United States would be very hard pressed to defend. And uh, in the last four years since we issued that report, I'm sorry to say, I don't think things have improved that much on that score. Um, perhaps a little bit, but not nearly enough to banish the worry that we could find ourselves, you know, faced with a, a very difficult situation. And what I worry about is, as we, you know, we have been increasing the military budget in the last two years, there were first two years of Trump administration and two years that were flat, and now two years of growth under President Biden. But as, as we begin to focus on these um, Indo-Pacific challenges, and particularly the challenge of China and Taiwan, we have to worry that the that Xi Jinping begins to con become concerned that time might be running against the PRC, which has its own set of internal challenges, you know, demographic and environmental and, and otherwise, and that they decide that they need to go early rather than later. And you see some worrying signs of that, including these warnings to the Biden administration about the prospective visit of Speaker Pelosi to Taipei, you know, and I worry that I think all of us on the commission were worried that, you know, we might be looking in the second half of this decade at a period of time of that would be particularly worrisome. And Eric, we're running out of time here. So maybe ask you one more question. We've been talking about what lessons China might be taking away. And I'm wondering, you know, if you could answer this in you know, a minute or so. What lessons do you think we need to take away from our experience with the Russians over the last eight years as we apply them, as we think about our policy toward China? Well, I would just make a couple of points, Michael. One is, I mean, you know, deterrence is important and thinking about deterrence in a rigorous way is important. And frankly, I think we've gotten out of the habit of doing that since the end of the Cold War. And I think we need to get back into that habit. 
Second, I would say this is something we pointed out in our report too. You know, we've tended to be prepared for very short wars, you know, 30 days. And you can see this in our own munition stocks. The munitions we've been supplying to Ukraine are in very short supply. And it's going to be very difficult for our defense industrial base to make us whole any kind of reasonable amount of time for, you know, a lot of complicated reasons that we don't have to get into. But basically, we lack the shop floor space and the, you know, skilled workforce to be able to produce a lot of these things rapidly. We may need these things in very large numbers, as we're discovering from what's going on in the battlefield and uh, between Russia and Ukraine. And in some cases, it'll be different kinds of munitions that we might need for an Indo-Pacific conflict. But the general proposition remains that we have to be prepared for potentially a very long conflict if we get into one. Eric, thank you. Thank you so much for, for sharing your insights with us today. And you know, thank you for joining us. It's been a terrific conversation. Well, thanks for having me. You're welcome. That was Eric Edelman. I'm Michael Morrell. Please join us next week for another episode of Intelligence Matters. Intelligence Matters is sponsored by Palantir Technologies, foundational software of tomorrow, delivered today. The show is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, Paulina Smolinski, and Reggie Bazile. For more from this week's show, visit cbsnews.com. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS News. I'm CBS News correspondent Major Garrett, host of the podcast Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen. During the Cold War, FBI agent Robert Hansen traded classified secrets to the Kremlin in exchange for cash and jewels. In the podcast, you'll hear from Hansen's closest friends, family members, victims, and colleagues for the most comprehensive telling of who Robert Hansen really was. Binge the entire series now. Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen is available on the Wondery app, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.